0: Do you know of many resurrections? Most everyone knows of Christ Jesus' resurrection from the tomb, but few know of the resurrections in the Old Testament that point toward the work of God on the cross. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. Today, we finish our studies in the life of the prophet Elisha and Second Kings with a message called, There's Still Life in Elisha's Old Bones. We'll be examining a miraculous renewal and the resurrections that happened before it. Phil, today we hear of another resurrection achieved through a prophet in the book of Second Kings. This time, it's Elisha's doing by God's power. In what ways does this point toward the New Testament and our understanding of Jesus Christ?
1: Well, Mark, it is another story of resurrection. I'm tempted to say no bones about it, and uh, if listeners want to hear why I'm tempted to say that, they'll have to listen to today's program, but it's a story of a miraculous coming back to life, and you know, these stories from the Old Testament are really preparing us for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You read through the Old Testament, you have stories of miraculous births, stories of suffering servants. Stories of the dead coming back to life.
0: It's all preparing us for the coming of Jesus Christ and his saving work. Well, Jesus was the most recent resurrection, or have there been more since that we know of, or perhaps even some happening in our day? Well, Mark, that's something people like to talk about, isn't it? Stories of
1: life after death or near-death experiences. But I can tell you very confidently that there has not been a resurrection in the biblical sense of the word since Jesus came back from the dead on Easter Sunday, because he didn't just come back to a mortal life. You know, like some of the stories in the Old Testament or even the story of Lazarus, people that came back to life but then later died. No, Jesus has a body of immortal resurrection glory. And no one else will have that resurrection body until the last day when all the people of God will be
0: raised together.
1: That's the biblical teaching about the resurrection. Great,
0: Phil. Thanks. Let's turn in our Bibles now to 2 Kings chapter 13 and listen to God's word for us today.
1: Not long after the end of World War II, the young evangelist Billy Graham was called to the office of Conrad Adenauer, who was then serving as the Chancellor of West Germany. Upon his arrival, Adenauer stood up and said, Mr. Graham, I have a question for you. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead? As a younger evangelist, remembers Graham, I was shocked. I was already nervous to be in the presence of a world statesman and then to have this question thrown at me. I looked at him and said, Sir, if I did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would have no gospel left to preach Upon those words, Adenauer turned and walked across the room to the window where he stood deep in thought for a time, gazing out the window. When the Chancellor finally turned around, he said, Mr. Graham, outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I know of no other hope for mankind. And Adenauer was right. Apart from the risen Christ, Parts from the power of God to bring the dead back to life, there is no hope for a dying humanity. And things must have seemed hopeless as the great prophet Elisha lay on his deathbed. For more than 50 years, he had done everything that he knew how to do to rescue God's people from their enemies and to turn them away from their sins. And yet, what did he have to show for his efforts? The leaders of Israel were inept. We read in verse 11 that King Jehoash did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam The army of Israel was ineffective. In fact, it had almost disappeared altogether. King Ahab had been able to summon some 2,000 chariots to his defense. Yet we read back in verse 7 that by the time the Syrians were through, nothing had been left of the army except 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 foot soldiers. The king of Aram had destroyed the rest and made them like the dust at threshing time, which I suppose is the Bible's way of saying that they were getting blown away. It was during these hopeless times that Elisha was suffering from the illness from which he died. Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. The king's concern is rather touching. He obviously had great respect for Elisha as a man of God. He even loved him, if his tears are any indication. As the king wept by Elisha's bedside, he put his grief into these words, "'My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel,' Those words may sound familiar. Jehoash was repeating the last words that Elisha himself had spoken to the prophet Elijah. We read them in 2 Kings chapter 2 that as they were walking along and talking together, a chariot of fire and horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up into heaven in a whirlwind. When Elisha saw this, he cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. And he saw him no more. Well, the death of Elisha, like the ascension of Elijah, was the end of an era. Perhaps Jehoash saw What Elisha saw when Elijah was taken up into heaven, perhaps he saw God's mighty army of angels coming down to take the prophet to glory. Or perhaps Jehoash was just feeling sorry for himself. He sounds as if he is worried about what will happen to his kingdom, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. In other words, what will happen to his army when Elisha passes away? Elisha practically was the chariots and horsemen of Israel. He was crucial to the nation's defenses more than once. By the power of God, he had single-handedly defeated Israel's enemies in battle. Losing Elisha was more than Jehoash could bear. And yet before the old prophet died, he uttered one last prophecy of hope and victory— he placed his hands over Jehoash's hands and his bow and his arrow. And that was to show that what he was about to do was full of prophetic significance. He instructed the king to open the east window and to shoot an arrow out in the direction of their enemies, the Arameans, now known as the Syrians when he did so, Elisha declared that this was the arrow of God's victory and that the king would completely defeat his enemies in battle. Victory was certain. All the king needed to do was to continue to trust God and to obey him with all his might. And so Elisha gave him this further instruction to take the arrows and to strike the ground with them. The king only did it three times, and the man of God became angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Because the king had not done so, his victory would be incomplete. He would only win the battle three times. Now, this may seem, I suppose, to be unfair to the king, and yet God was testing Jehoash to see if he had the courage to finish the work that he had been given to do. The king already knew that these arrows had a spiritual and prophetic significance. He should have followed his instructions. He should have kept striking the ground until Elisha told him to stop. Yet he held back, leaving half of his arrows in his quiver. It's a lesson, I suppose, about half-hearted obedience, only beginning the work which God has given us to do without finishing it. If we lack the courage to trust and obey to the very end, the most that we can expect is a partial victory. And it is on this rather discouraging note that the prophetic ministry of Elisha comes to a close. He died and was buried. And then what hope was left for the people of God? Well, then the most remarkable thing happened. It's one of the most fantastic events of the Old Testament. People talked about it for years, even though the Bible describes it in the most matter-of-fact way. Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring, and once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb, and when the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. A woman from this congregation works in the Archaeology Museum at the University of Pennsylvania, and she and her husband were reading through Second Kings together, and when her husband read these verses, she said, What? Let me see that Bible a moment to see if that's really what the scripture says. Well it is a remarkable episode. The first question to ask about it is, what really happened? The answer is exactly what the Bible says happened. Some Israelites went out to bury a man, and he was, of course, a dead man. People could check a pulse in those days, as they can in our own. And suddenly, as this burial party was proceeding on its way to the site of burial, they were surprised by a squad of enemy soldiers— They were encumbered by the body, and so they had to get rid of it as soon as they could. They just tossed it into the nearest cave, which happened also to be Elisha's tomb. The very moment that the body touched Elisha's bones, the man sprang back to life. A dead man came back to life. He was miraculously and instantaneously revivified by the prophet's bones. That is what happened, and there is no reason to doubt it, for if there is a God, surely he can at least raise the dead. The second question to ask is, what does it all mean? No doubt this was the question which the people were trying to answer when they met in the barbershops and cafes of Israel. It was the story of the miracle spread. People must have been inspired to a great and holy fear of God. What could this mean? Well, surely the miracle said something about the prophet Elisha. It was almost as if he had the grace of God in his very bones. According to one of the Jewish rabbis who wrote in the second century before Christ, Elisha's body prophesied when he was dead as in his life he did wonders, so in his death his deeds were marvelous. It's true that Elisha had performed many mighty miracles in his day. He cursed his enemies and they were mauled by bears. He filled jars and jars full of oil for the widow. He healed Naaman of his leprosy. He made an axe head to float. It's also true that many of Elisha's amazing prophecies came true in his own lifetime. The Moabites were slaughtered in the Valley of Edom, just as Elisha had prophesied. The siege of Jerusalem was lifted. and The king's servant, who had doubted that such a thing could happen, was trampled at the gate, just as Elisha had prophesied. The house of Ahab was destroyed. Jezebel was devoured, all as Elisha had prophesied. And this final miracle proved that everything that Elisha ever said or did in God's name was true. And the fact that there was still life in his old bones proved that he was a man of God. The miracle also proved this. It proved that God still had a plan for Israel. For you see, although Israel was not quite dead, yet with the death of Elisha, the nation was barely breathing. They were hardly in much better shape than this dead man. Yet we read in the very next verse, verse 22, that Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoahaz, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham. He was unwilling to destroy them or to banish them from his presence. And you see, what happened in this miracle with the coming back to life of this dead man was almost like a parable of God's plan for his people. It showed that God was not about to go back on a promise that went all the way back to Abraham. This is a comfort to every child of God. Even if you lose everything that seems to matter in life, you are not forsaken. God is gracious to you. He has compassion upon you. He has concern for you. And he will not destroy you, but will keep you safe in his presence forevermore. This chapter is a reminder that God loves you in Christ with the love of his everlasting covenant, just the way that he loved Israel at the death of Elisha. And so this miracle does say something about Elisha himself and about God's plans for Israel, but most importantly of all, it confirmed the resurrection power of God. Now, strictly speaking, what happened to the body of this man was not a resurrection. By that I mean that this man was not gloriously transformed into the kind of supernatural body which Jesus Christ himself received at his resurrection. The man was still mortal. Surely he died again and had to be buried again. And yet what this chapter does teach us is that the man was given life after death. He was revivified. Therefore, this fantastic historical event confirmed the power of God over life and death. It looked forward to that great victory God won over death through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it is sometimes suggested that the Old Testament has little or nothing to say about life after death. One of my professors at Oxford liked to say that there is no doctrine of resurrection in the Hebrew Bible. And yet the Old Testament does, too, have a doctrine of resurrection, does teach the power of God over life and death, almost from the very beginning of the Old Testament, the Word of God promises that there is physical life after death for the children of God. Consider Abraham. He had faith in the resurrection. You remember how it was God told him to go to a high mountain and to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. So Abraham took his son and his servants and he went to make his sacrifice, and when he looked up and saw Mount Moriah in the distance, he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. You see, Abraham was prepared to sacrifice his son. He was ready to build the altar and to arrange the wood and to put the knife to the throat of his son. Nevertheless, he told his servants, we Will worship and then we will come back to you. You see, Abraham fully expected that both he and his son would come back down from the mountain. What was he thinking? Well, the writer to the Hebrews tells us what he was thinking. He explains that Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. You see, he believed in the resurrection power of God. He reasoned his way from his doctrine of God to the doctrine of the resurrection. Or consider Job. Job lost everything he had, everything except life itself. I am nothing but skin and bones, he lamented. Job chapter 19, verse 20. I have escaped only with the skin of my teeth, And yet in the very next verse, Job declares his absolute confidence in the resurrection power of God. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him, I and not another, with my own eyes." You see, Job had faced up squarely to the reality of his own mortality. He knew that his skin would be destroyed, that his flesh would rot in the grave, and that his body would return to the dust. And yet he never lost his faith in the resurrection. He believed that he would see his living Redeemer with his own eyes in his own life-after-death body. And then there's David. He had a doctrine of life after death. He testifies to it in the 23rd Psalm. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When he said forever, he meant forever. Oh, he knew that he, like any other human being, was mortal. So he knew that in order for him to live with God forever, he would have to be raised from the dead. That is exactly the hope that he expresses in the psalm that we read for our call to worship. My heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see, like Job, David knew that God would not abandon him to the grave. And what we learn from The stories of Elijah and Elisha is that the Old Testament has not only a doctrine of resurrection, it also gives examples of resurrection, at least in a sense. Elijah and Elisha had not merely a sort of theoretical knowledge of resurrection, they had practical experience of it in their own miracles. You remember that Elijah raised the dead at Zarephath where a widow's son became ill and died. And Elijah in his great distress cried out to the Lord and asked God to let the boy's life return to him. And the Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy lived. Elisha raised the dead not once, but twice. First he raised the son of the Shunammite woman, this boy that went out into the fields complaining of a headache and they sent him back into his mother and by lunchtime he was dead. Yet Elisha came to the house and he prayed for the boy and the boy's life was restored. And that was Elisha's first life-giving miracle and we've had the second more amazing even than the first because only God, only God could use the dead to bring the dead back to life. You see, there is this doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament, this teaching about life after death. It's there in Abraham and Job and David and the prophets. Of course, the resurrection that matters most of all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. The striking thing is that when his resurrection is discussed in the New Testament, it often is rested upon the foundation of the Old Testament. It is according to the Scriptures that Jesus was raised from the dead, meaning the Scriptures of the Old Testament. The Gospel of John, for example, describes how Peter and John went to the almost empty tomb it says that when they saw the grave closed, they understood that Christ was not in the tomb. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. You see, it was only later that they understood the Old Testament teaching about resurrection. And the apostle Paul came to the same understanding. He testified that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried And that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the scriptures. The resurrection of the Messiah was the promise of the Old Testament. That's the foundation upon which the New Testament rests its doctrine of the resurrection. The only question that remains for us is a personal question. That is, do you believe The doctrine of the resurrection? Do you believe that it is true? Do you believe that God has the power to raise the dead? For if you do not believe that Jesus of Nazareth actually died and actually rose again, you are not a Christian. The Bible says, this is Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's very simple. That's all it takes. God's standards are not complicated to understand. It's simply a matter of testifying that Jesus is Lord and believing that God raised him from the dead. The question is, do you believe this? I want to tell you a story that comes from A novel by Martin Gardner about a young man named Peter Fromm who left the Christian faith of his childhood. One of the climactic scenes of the novel is a dinner party which becomes a very heated argument about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter begins by asking the Reverend Norman Middleton a simple question. I'm curious to know what you think actually happened. Did the body of Jesus really rise from the dead? Middleton leaned forward to carve his cigar's ash into the ashtray on the table in front of him. I don't think this is the time or the place, Peter, to discuss such questions. Why not, said Peter, you must have some opinion about what happened. Please, Peter... Martha called out from the other end of the room, Do let's talk about something else. Reverend Middleton took several contemplative puffs on his cigar. Of course I have an opinion, but the question isn't a simple one. It would take a long time to make my position clear. I don't think I could do it now without being misunderstood. The question is simple. Peter persisted. There's nothing complicated about it. Either Jesus rose bodily from the dead or he didn't. Do you think he actually appeared in the flesh to the disciples? I can't see that it matters, Middleton said, mopping his forehead. The disciples were certainly convinced that they saw Jesus with their eyes, but the important thing is the eternal reality behind the temporal symbol. Peter turned to face Middleton. Let's put it this way, Norman. The Bible says that the body of Jesus vanished. Where did it go? What happened to it? There are only two possibilities. Either it was revivified the way the Gospels tell it, or it wasn't. There's no other possibility. What happened to the body? I don't like the way the question is phrased. Peter moved closer to Middleton so he could shake a finger in front of the minister's face. and In an icy voice, he said, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, tell us what you believe. Well, that's a reasonable demand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, what do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Everything that really matters depends upon the answer to that question. The Bible says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That is to say, you cannot be saved. And so I present to you the facts as we find them in Scripture. Jesus of Nazareth lived in the first century in Palestine that he was crucified by Roman soldiers outside Jerusalem. Of this there can be no doubt, for these facts are confirmed not only inside the Bible, but also outside the Bible. Fact, Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a site well known both to the Jews and to the Christians. Fact, the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty. The truth of this fact was granted even by the enemies of Christianity. When the Jewish leaders tried to deny Jesus' resurrection, they said, His disciples stole his body. By making that argument, they were admitting the truth of this important fact, that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty. You see, when the first Christians said that Jesus had been raised from the dead, they were making a claim it was easy to prove false. If anybody wanted to discredit the apostles thoroughly, all he had to do was to produce the body, that is to say, the corpse of Jesus of Nazareth. Everyone knew he had been crucified. Everybody knew where he was buried. So where was the corpse? Well, the fact was that there was no corpse, but the tomb was empty. Fact Many first-century Jews claimed to have seen Jesus after he was raised from the dead. This fact is documented not only in many cases by the Gospels, but also by the Apostle Paul, who claimed that Jesus appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve, and that after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, and then to James, and then to all the Apostles. You see, Jesus appeared not only once, but many times, not just in one location, but many places, not just to one individual, but also to large groups. Thus, the German scholar Gerd Ludemann, who is largely skeptical about the reliability of the Bible, says, It is historically certain that Peter and the other disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. And I might also add, and I've said this before, that it is highly significant that the first people to see the risen Christ were women. According to Jewish custom, the testimony of a woman was inadmissible in a court of law. If the writers of the Gospels were trying to write fiction, the last thing they would have done was to rest their case upon the word of a woman. And yet the Gospels clearly state that it was Mary Magdalene who gave this Testimony to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Of course, this is because the gospel writers were not writing fantasy, but history. Fact that many first century Jews continued to worship Jesus of Nazareth after his death. This is remarkable. For although Jesus often talked about suffering and dying, his disciples never seemed to understand what he was talking about. This was because the Jews of that time had no expectation of a dying Messiah, especially one who died on a cross. The very idea was repugnant to their way of thinking, because the law of God clearly states that anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. Yet the first Christians worshipped Jesus as their crucified and risen Messiah. They believed that Jesus was no longer under a curse, but that God had accepted his death as the atonement for their sins. And they were willing to die for their belief that Jesus was not dead but alive. How can these facts be explained? The best explanation, the true explanation is that God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ explains the empty tomb. It explains why so many people claim to have seen him after his death. It explains how he came to be worshipped as the crucified and the risen Savior. Now, if... God did not raise the body of Jesus from the dead. The rest of Christianity is largely irrelevant. In fact, I'm not sure myself why anyone would want to become a Christian. But if God is the God of resurrection, and there is hope for all who trust in him, The hope of eternal life. Amen. And let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise that your great power has been demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that these things are so clearly presented in the Bible. We pray for that grace of the Holy Spirit which enables us to believe in Christ and thereby to receive salvation. It's in his name that we pray.
0: Amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word.